Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about medication assistance programs with Nancy Bollier and Brenda Sepulveda. Nancy is Associate Director of Oncology Pharmacy Services for the Smilo Network, and Brenda is Medication Assistance Program Coordinator. Dr. Chagpar is a Professor of Surgical Oncology at the Yale University School of Medicine. So, Nancy, maybe I'll start with you. Tell me a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. We essentially mix chemotherapy um, and assure that all medication safety practices are in order for all of our patients within our network. Brenda, how about you? I am the Medication Assistance Program Coordinator. I um, am part of a group that assists patients with uh, medication programs that require copay or uh, foundation funding. So, Nancy, you know, from a big, you know, 30,000 foot picture, how often is it that patients actually have issues in paying for medications? I mean, I think that on this show, we've often talked about novel therapies, uh, the latest in clinical trials, new targeted drugs, but all of that comes at a cost. How much of a problem is it? The financial burden of um, many of the new medications that come out is significant. All patients with long-term chronic diseases, cancer included in that, have significant stressors to deal with. They have emotional stress. They have mental, physical stress. But one of the greatest stressors that they deal with that's a burden not only to the patient themselves, but also their family, is the stress of the financial component of how they're going to pay for their therapy, their treatments. Financial toxicity is a um, newer buzz term that we are using to describe the sum of the financial side effects associated with the economic burden of care and medications placed on these patients and their families. It is a significant issue, and that is one of the reasons why, um, and as long as 12 years ago, we went into developing a mechanism to assist patients with some of this financial burden. And so just staying with you on that, I mean, uh, aren't, uh, are, are, are many of these therapies covered by insurance or are people still having financial hardship despite insurance? So we have um, many patients who have either inadequate health care insurance or they have health care insurance, but the out-of-pocket costs of many of these therapies can be extreme and a severe burden on their um, financial outcome. There are significant rising costs in medications, all new meds that do come out, and certainly they provide hope for many patients, but they are not, um, they do come with a cost. And that is one of the things that we really need to work with. And we have been doing that for over 10 years um, for our patients, both here and in the outpatient uh, specialty pharmacy, they also have medication assistance program coordinators. Brenda, tell us a little bit more about how that works. I mean, 
I can imagine that cancer patients are faced with a diagnosis of cancer, which is enough of a burden physically, mentally, emotionally. And then, you know, their doctor prescribes a, a chemotherapy regimen or, or certain medications. Um, and then whether they have insurance or not, they're faced with a rather large bill. Um, so how do you help them to get around that? And is there a difference between uh, the assistance that's available for uninsured patients versus the assistance that's available for people who have insurance but whose insurance might not be adequate. Uh, yes. So um, staying with that topic, we know that the financial burden is a big concern. And part of what we do is um, within our program is to ensure that the patient is able to remain on the preferred course of therapy while focusing on their healthcare journey. And so for the patients that are insured but may be under insured because they still have high out-of-pockets, we assist with those copay assistance programs through our manufacturer-sponsored copay foundation funding or replacement programs. There's a difference with a patient that is insured um, and also that has no insurance. And so we will go, depending on what that status is, to the preferred program to ensure that they're able to remain on that therapy without interruptions and without having to deplete their own personal income throughout their therapy journey. Tell me more about that, Brenda. I, I mean, uh, because I'm sure that many of our listeners are, are really rather intrigued about how um, there is assistance available. So let's take the the two examples. So, so the first is for people who have insurance, um, but they are still underinsured. Their out-of-pocket costs are too much for them to bear. So how do they access these programs and what programs are available? Would they cover all of their out-of-pocket costs? Um, you mentioned that these are programs available through the manufacturers. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Uh, so patients are able to access the manufacturer-sponsored programs um, as soon as they identify what medications they're having a financial concern with. Um, typically, it can go through providers where they will also have access to this pharmacy services and will be contacted to then do a bit more research within the manufacturer program. So someone who has insurance but is underinsured means that they still will have a high out-of-pocket cost to that medication, and this can occur many times within the treatment. So what we do is take care of the portion that is pertaining to the medication. A lot of programs may allow uh, the financial eligibility to go towards other costs during that uh, appointment, but Typically, it will go geared towards the medication, and that's our main focus because we know that that's where the out-of-pocket cost tends to fall um, under, and that's where it's mostly large at when it comes to the treatment. So for someone who is underinsured or, or uninsured, then we will 
follow the same protocol um, if there's a concern uh, that's been extended to the provider and we are aware of that or the patient may have been able to gather some information through the manufacturer's website, then we go ahead and become sort of a gateway for the patient and the programs and our providers to make sure that they are properly enrolled and that the process of submissions for those out-of-pocket costs are processed correctly and the patient does doesn't have to worry about any of that during the course of their therapy. So someone who isn't insured may be eligible to actually have access to the medication replacement programs through the insurance as well um, by us having to go through the programs for the manufacturers. So Nancy, it sounds like, you know, there are some programs through manufacturers that patients can um, become familiar with through their websites. But I'm just wondering how many patients actually, you know, have done the research, have gone to manufacturers' websites to figure out whether or not they would be eligible for assistance. I mean, I'm not sure that if I was a patient, um, I would necessarily know to do that. I think that was one of the impetuses for us to actually develop this program because patients weren't aware. It's not well publicized. Um, if you go to the programs, I mean, if you go to the websites, you can certainly see everyone has a patient assistance tab, but quite often patients are unaware of that. And that is why uh, we chose to make it a formalized program and not another burden on the patient for them to have to manage. Uh, we have currently seven um, medication assistance program coordinators and over 16,000 currently enrolled active patients in the program that um, I oversee with my MAP program coordinators. And so, Brenda, you know, it, it's great that there is this program um, through the Smilo network. But, you know, I'm just thinking about other patients who may be listening to this program who may not be linked in um, to the Smilo network. If they were to go to, you know, the websites of all of the drugs that they're on, and, you know, I agree with you, uh, Nancy, that that is yet another burden for patients. But can you give us a, a little bit of guidance in terms of, you know, who would be eligible? Um, are there certain income guidelines or certain employment guidelines? How do, how do these programs kind of dis decide who gets assistance and who doesn't? Sure. So uh, with the programs, if a patient uh, identifies that burden and knows that there is something there that they need assistance with and it's um, not within the SMILO community, they can definitely um, ask for assistance with their providers or their the preferred office for their treatment area. What they, it does is that the manufacturer gives the information to the patient on how to go about the application process and involving the provider's office as well. Um, so it's definitely geared to assist the patient and have the provider's office be able to be a part of that with the patient um, so that the enrollment process is successful. Uh, a lot of the income criteria is based on whether there is employment, um, whether there is a retirement um, or household size. So a lot of the programs will 
have that kind of criteria for a patient to be able to be eligible. Um, as long as they are on that therapy, income, household size are some of the things that they will look at, uh, especially too for people who are insured, that the therapy has been approved by the insurance in order to proceed if we're talking about copay assistance. And, and so, you know, Nancy, back to you. I, I'm just wondering, you know, there are people out there who are underinsured, but they may be making the income or barely making the income requirement such that they would not qualify for assistance. But they may be doing that by working three jobs and, you know, trying to make ends meet. Um, and so it kind of begs the question when these patients are going through cancer and, you know, they are automatically in a situation where they may be losing some of that income, um, but they're still, quote, employed. Um, but, but, you know, especially if they were making income based on an hourly wage. Um, so while they may have employment status, and if the uh, application said, you know, show me what your income was in the past year, they may have been, you know, scraping by with more than the bare minimum that's required for assistance. Is it something that you advise people to actually quit one of their jobs or reduce their income so that they can uh, avail themselves of this assistance? Or or how does that work? I mean, it just seems like a system where, you know, you have to kind of give on one way or another in order to try to make ends meet for some people. I think the first um, part of that question that I'd like to address has to do with what the um, income requirements are. And historically, for many of these programs, the income requirement is quite high. So that should be of comfort to anyone who wants to apply for these programs as well as continue to work. Many of them are extremely high. And, and I don't know how many patients currently that we have that don't get accepted because of their income, but the majority do get accepted. Um, I, I guess I could say that I wouldn't recommend anyone quit a job unless that is their personal choice to do so. And a lot of our patients, if you are being treated for a chronic disease, often have issues with working anyway because you are in constant treatment. Um, and, you know, even if it's a temporary time frame, we can also petition these companies as well or the patient can for exceptions. So their tax return last year may be far higher than it is this year because they they unfortunately became ill and they, are, they cannot hold their job any longer. So there are other options. There are also um, foundation programs as well. So, so the manufacturers are one. There are grant programs which fall under the foundation category. That's another option as well for patients. Well, all good information. We're going to pick up this conversation right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about colorectal cancer. 
When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, and as a result, it's recommended that men and women over the age of 45 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatments. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guests, Nancy Bollier and Brenda Sepulveda. We're talking about oncology pharmacy services and particularly the financial toxicity that many patients face um, when undergoing cancer therapy. Now, Right before the break, uh, we were talking about some financial assistance programs. And Nancy, it was so great to hear that, um, you know, the income requirements uh, for assistance um, are actually quite high. So, you know, if you are in financial distress when you get the bill for your um, medications, you know, you can go to uh, the 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 pharmaceutical manufacturer's website um, to try to find a patient assistance program, talk to your provider, um, and and certainly um, at Smilo, there is the the medication assistance program that you mentioned. Brenda, my question to you is, are all medications covered? So, for example, are all chemotherapies uh, covered? Does that only include IV therapies? What about oral therapies? Are there certain medications that don't have a patient assistance program, like, you know, novel immunotherapies? Um, What's included and what isn't? Yes. So while there are hundreds of medications that are covered and uh, we often find a lot of uh, eligible programs to assist our patients with, there will be some that will have some type of restrictions or some requirement. We find that a lot of the immunotherapies are eligible for these programs, but it's really um, something that we will research and know at the time of the current treatment. So there will be other factors there that we'll have to look at and see if there's an eligibility requirement that will allow them to participate in the manufacturer programs. But there's definitely hundreds of programs um, available for uh, the chemotherapies. And so, Nancy, to you, I mean, is this something that is discussed uh, with the patient and the provider before the provider makes a treatment regimen? Or is this something that the patients are then scrambling to do after the provider has written out their recommended treatment? The providers generally write out what's recommended because that is where we want to go with the therapeutic direction for the patient. After that, however, um, quite often we have to assure that the patient's medications are going to be covered. That's the first step through if a patient is insured. And if we get denials, then we step in. We do have what's called a medication assistance program brochure that uh, we provide in all of our offices. So they are available to patients before they ever even go into the physician practice. Um, Many times the 
program coordinators are working on the back end. So in our program, we work with um, determining how much of a bill that the patient may have once insurance has gone through and then we go and pinpoint certain programs for those patients. We actually have a software that assists us with that as well. In the general population, um, again, as you had mentioned, patients can go to websites. Always include your provider on what um, what forms you have filled out to make sure there's not duplicate duplicative work going on there, which has happened in, to us in the past, um, so that these patients can get the most out of these programs. To do a little bit of a spin in regards to your previous question about availability and drugs that have programs, what we find is anything that is new and highly expensive definitely have patient assistance programs. Many of the older therapies that are uh, generic at this point may not. Uh, it's really focused quite often on the higher cost or higher end medications. And there are definitely medication assistance programs for oral medications. Anyone who even at a, you know, your local CVS, your Walgreens, patients should always be asking what's out there to assist them if they can't afford any medication that um, they may need. And so, you know, when you uh, determine up front um, what the cost of therapy would be, is that done before the therapy actually starts? I mean, um, Brenda, is, are you intervening before a treatment starts to say, okay, this is what the cost would be. Can you afford it or can you not? Can we get all of these programs um and the applications in to, for assistance before you start so that you know what the damage is going to be financially um, afterwards? Um, or is this something that is kind of being done after I've already started therapy and in tandem with that so that I don't really have a choice except to hope that I get accepted? Typically, as Nancy mentioned, once the treatment plan is in place by the provider, and we know that this is the preferred course of therapy, it's going to undergo that um, if there's an insurance involvement or a lack of insurance, it'll go through that process of uh, referral. And um, that will sort of let us know when we um, necessarily need to step in and if there will be high costs towards the the treatment plan. Um, we do uh, have our own software where we, um, on the back end, try to capture as many patients beforehand. Um, but when this isn't possible, what's great about the programs is that some of them have look back periods that go up to 180 days. So even if a patient has initiated the treatment, there's still uh, time for enrollment and to capture that date of service that was already served. Uh, service or infused prior to the enrollment for the programs. Yeah, but Nancy, you know, my my question is, it's great that there's a look back program and that maybe you'll be able to apply for that assistance um, going backwards. But what if even with assistance, it's still too expensive? Um, you know, is there any 
how, because one would anticipate that making all of those applications to these pharma companies and getting all of the, uh, you know, the T's crossed and I's dotted to get assistance takes some time. So meanwhile, you're starting therapy without knowing whether you're going to get assistance and how much. And so at the end of the day, you may still be left with a bill. On the other hand, if you try to apply for all of the assistance up front, you're now delaying your treatment. And it's kind of a, a bit of a tug. Uh, how, how do you work around that? It's definitely a catch-22. The way we process um, treatment plan orders, once the physician decides what the best course of therapy is, they go to what's called a patient account rep. That person does an insurance verification on the patient's therapy. So before a patient gets treated, they have to have a pre-certification of those meds. If, for example, an insurance says, nope, we're not paying for a certain med, that is a trigger for the MAP program. All of the providers are fully well aware of our MAP program coordinators, and they know that they can reach out. If they think this person, this patient needs a specific drug, they will reach out to the MAP program coordinator and say, hey, this got denied by insurance. Can you help? And those are some of the routes we go down. But in patients whose insurance companies say they're not going to pay, will know up front before they ever get treated. Um, when we enroll patients in the MAP programs, that is usually an acceptance or at least the coordinator knows that the patient meets criteria. So there is some level of comfort there that that person will get into that program before they start being treated. Some of the programs we actually have to treat the patient first, have the insurance deny the bill before the program, one of the ways we get um, assistance is they actually send us the physical drug vials back to replenish our supply. So the patient never gets billed for that particular drug. So that's another way. There's copay assistance where they actually assist with insured copay. There's also, though, medication vial assistance where the actual physical drug gets replaced after the patient gets it and is insurance denied. Yeah, but that must be scary for the the patient who, you know, uh, now gets their insurance denied and are thinking, oh my God, am I responsible for that cost? Um, so back to you, Brenda, you know, we've talked a little bit about um, the, the outpatient, the infusion chemotherapy. Um, Nancy mentioned that oral therapies are covered what about in emergent situations where patients are in the hospital um, and may not be having these in-depth conversations with their physician about how much this is going to cost? Do these programs cover patients in that situation? Um, and, and if not, how do they deal with that on top of an overwhelming cost of hospitalization? A lot of the programs are geared towards the outpatient ambulatory status, where MAP can essentially interfere a little bit or give some advice would be if there is already a discharge plan and we need to look ahead um, for that treatment course. When there is 
a hospitalization already taken place and it requires treatment, there may be other financial um, assistance that can go through billing to help with those. But the manufacturing programs are essentially geared to our outpatient infusion status with um, the oral medications going towards the pharmacy medication assistance program. So there is a difference there when it comes to an inpatient and outpatient and who is eligible for these types of programs. So, so Nancy, what advice do you have for patients who, you know, might be facing a cancer diagnosis and, you know, might be worried not only about their cancer, but also about the cost? What should they do? Um, my greatest advice would be to become as informed as you possibly can. Know the names of your drugs you're getting, get onto those websites, see what their patient assistance programs offer, talk with your physicians, their nurses, their front desk staff, and hopefully then they can actually assist and know what they are able to get up front and know that there is a way and a safety net for them when those bills do come in to avoid this financial toxicity. Nancy Bollier is Associate Director of Oncology Pharmacy Services for the Smilo Network, and Brenda Sepulveda is Medication Assistance Program Coordinator. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.